Have you ever wanted to be bold, to be brave, speak up, take a new path in life, but you wish you had someone to walk beside you? This is A Voice of Her Own, a podcast about our journey to agency, authority, and action. Each week, you'll get inspiration, actionable practices, and support from me and from brave women of all kinds, walking their own path and telling their own stories. I'm Diva. I'm a trauma-informed coach and a doctoral student in psychology. So I know a few things about seeking an authentic life, but I'm still learning too. So join me as we support, encourage, and inspire each other. This is a podcast about showing up. This is a voice of her own. Welcome to another episode of A Voice of Her Own. I'm your host, Diva Davison, and today's episode is poignant. It's a very important episode to my mind. I am interviewing Rosemary Deck and Julia Oliveira, and Rosemary is the chief prosecutor for the Yurok tribe. And Julia Oliveira is the first dedicated investigator in the state of California to work solely on cases of missing and murdered indigenous persons. Now, this movement about missing and murdered indigenous persons has been often called MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And I've chosen to put that hashtag on the cover art of this episode because the vast majority of missing and murdered indigenous person cases are in fact women. So that is my choice. Um, It's a more familiar hashtag. And I also want to highlight the woman's issue part of the equation. But I do recognize that women are not the only missing and murdered indigenous persons. Um, One reason that the Yurok tribe decided to change from MMIW to MMIP is because of the missing and murdered two-spirit people, um, which is how they refer to transgender people and also children. And it is true that there are missing and murdered indigenous men as well. But the mass majority are women. And as you know, I have been delving more into the topic of historical trauma or intergenerational trauma. One of the places in which this has been studied the most is among Alaska Natives and Indigenous Peoples of the Americas. And when I was working in social work uh, a few years ago, uh, I was in a focus group, a panel, and one of the panel members was a woman named Geneva Shaw. She's a lecturer in the social work department at Cal Poly Humboldt. And she is a member of the Hoopa tribe and the descendant of other local tribes. And she came in and talked to us about the the use of female bodies, of 
indigenous female bodies through the last 200 years in regards to the colonialization and the forced um, schooling and the women who were sexually trafficked. Um, and it was, it was eye-opening. It was something that maybe I had an idea about, but I, I didn't fully recognize the depth of the historical use of indigenous women's bodies. And I think that there is a connection from that to the missing and murdered indigenous women movement today. And when you start to hear the statistics, it's very alarming. It's almost inconceivable. You are 30 times more likely to be a victim of violence as an indigenous or Alaska native woman than as a white woman. And homicide is the third leading cause of death for indigenous and Alaska native women. So it's a very pressing problem. And I am in Northern California. And in Northern California, we have a very large percentage of the missing and, and potentially murdered indigenous cases. And so I was very, very um, pleased, gratified, excited to see that my uh, friend and former coworker, Julia Oliveira, um, had been selected as the first dedicated investigator for the state of California. She's working for the Yurok tribe, and the Yurok tribe has done some really amazing work in the last three years around this issue. And so I could not be more thrilled than to have the chief prosecutor of the Yurok tribe, Rosemary Deck, here to talk about her efforts and also to have Julie here talking about what this new position means and what the hopes are for the future. Ultimately, this episode is hopeful. That's how I see it, because it shows that we're the in increasing awareness of this issue means that we're able to really sort of look and say, what can we do? How can we be better allies? What, what needs to be done? Who can do it? What are the issues? And I am, I'm not sure if proud is the right word because proud sounds possessive, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the Yurok tribe's response to this because it really is groundbreaking. They're creating a program and a toolkit to share with tribes across the United States and Canada uh, to address this problem. So I hope that you will take a listen. I hope that you will really take some time to ponder some of the issues that come up around this and think about how we can all be better neighbors and better stewards of our community because none of us is in this alone. All right, without further ado, Rosemary Deck and Julie Oliveira. 
Okay, welcome to another episode of A Voice of Her Own. I'm your host, Diva Davison. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rosemary Deck, the Chief Prosecutor for the Yurok Tribe, and Julie Oliveira, who is the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Investigator for the Yurok Tribe. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm so glad that you're here. This is, I think, a really important, um, not very well-known issue. And it's something that I would like to be able to give some um, airspace for because I think it's not in a lot of people's radar. And what I'm speaking about is the <clears throat> the movement to recognize the um, really alarming statistics surrounding missing and murdered indigenous persons. Before we get into that, though, I always ask my guests, what is alive for you? And that is a question of what is um, what are you passionate about right now? What are you excited about? What is on your mind? Uh, Julie, if you want to go, go for it. Um, for me, because uh, this is a new position for me, but it was something that... Um, I've been passionate about actually for a few years now. I am currently serving on the Office of Violence Against Women through the Federal uh, Attorney General's Office. I'm on their task force for MI MMIPs. And once I started that, it sort of opened my eyes to uh, an issue that really even now is just, they're just starting to touch on dealing with missing and murdered indigenous people. And uh, I get the honor of being one of the folks that get to kind of be in the forefront of designing ways and, and procedures to make, to hopefully help in the future, um, drop that number down and maybe prevent people from, prevent this from happening to people. So I'm very excited about it and I am very passionate about it. it it's such an important issue that has been ignored for way too long. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thanks, Julie. Um, what about you, Rosemary? Yeah, I think um, it is exciting to be leading in this space um, and bringing folks together to address this crisis. And so, um, you know, fortunately, because of... Uh, you know, the, the folks we have on the ground at Yurok um, were really kind of emerging as uh, leading in this MMIP space. And it is our intention to, you know, bring everyone along with us. So we are very focused on um, a regional approach to this crisis. We are not only looking at what's happening um, within the Yurok tribe or on the Yurok reservation. I think that the only way to adequately address this issue is to do so looking at this whole region and, and why there is a concentration of missing and murdered indigenous persons cases in this region. And then I know Julie and I share the hope that eventually any systems that we build, um, we would like to be able to give kind of the blueprints of that to other tribes or other people working in this space, um, you know, to, to save them the work if we've already figured out something that works, right? Uh, we would love to be able to empower other tribes across California and the country to really start doing this work and to build partnerships with, you know, state, local, federal uh, justice partners and address this crisis head on. Yeah, 
I, I am, well, I'm not going to go quite into the program yet. Although when I saw what you were creating, I was just blown away because it's so needed. But before we get into that, let me get brief bios from each of you. Rosemary, if you want to start, I know you're the chief prosecutor for the Iraq tribe. Um, a little background would be great. Sure. So I am currently the chief prosecutor for the Yurok tribe. Um, I moved to Humboldt County in 2009 from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I went to College of the Redwoods. I went to Humboldt State University. I earned my bachelor's degree in political science. And then I went to McGeorge School of Law, which is the University of Pacific School of Law in Sacramento. Um, where I graduated Order of the Coif, um, and essentially, you know, I went to school to become a public defender. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very passionate about indigent defense, um, you know, giving people an opportunity to assert their rights when they're facing the entire structure of the government. Uh, and so that's the work that I did coming out of law school. I practiced for four years as a public defender in criminal court at the Humboldt County Public Defender's Office, you know, taking cases to jury trial, negotiating plea agreements um, and the like. And then this opportunity came along and you know, folks who know me always kind of chuckle because I, I was such a dyed in the wool public defender and now my title is chief <laughs> prosecutor. But I think it speaks to the uh, unique approach that the Yurok tribe takes to restorative justice. I would not just be any prosecutor. You know, I, I don't think I ever would have been enticed to become a district attorney. What's unique about the Yurok tribe, you know, they are leading in the healing to wellness courts, restorative justice programs, yes. asserting their sovereignty. Um, and that really spoke to me because a lot of what drew me to public defense and indigent defense work was, you know, helping amplify the voice of someone who systemically is is not being amplified. Right. Um, you know, and and I find a lot of that um, similar, you know, rewarding work, uh, advocating for justice systems that make sense that are not mm -hmm. punitive that are restorative. So I took the job as the prosecutor with the Yurok tribe, and that was in July of 2021. And when I started, it was just me um, on a grant. Mm -hmm. And in the year and a half since I started, we now have an office of six people, including a deputy prosecutor, a justice policy lead, uh, MMIP investigator, Julie, a paralegal, an administrative assistant, and we are now building out um, more broadly than just what was contemplated in a prosecutor. We're also yeah. doing, you know, investigation, litigation, policy advocacy, um, and that is really what is needed to address some of the issues head on um, right. that are going on. So I could get really into the weeds about different types of. <laughs> jurisdiction and how we're doing that. But I, I have a feeling yeah. we're going to unpack that a little bit later in this conversation. So that's that's how we got to where we are today. Yeah. And I the one thing that I really got out of reading the reports, and we'll get to this, but is that this is an issue that's multifaceted. It needs to be approached from a variety of um of different perspectives. And one of them is legislative. And I'm really appreciative that the Yurok tribe is like going for that legislative piece. And I'd love to talk about that in just a minute. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, Julie, uh, if you wouldn't mind giving us a brief bio. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, I've been in law enforcement for 25 years. I started with the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office. Uh, I was with them for 20 plus years. And while there, I was an outstation deputy along with you. Um, <laughs> so we got to have our fun times in Southern Humboldt. And then uh, from there, I worked patrol all over Humboldt County, uh, worked in child sexual abuse in the investigations division, worked in missing persons in the investigative uh, division, was uh the school resource officer for Arcata High was a school resource officer for College of the Redwoods. Um, I'm currently serving on their crisis negotiation team, which I've been on since 2007. And with some reticence, I will tell you that I am the longest uh, serving officer on that uh, team. Wow. And uh, yeah, so it's become, it went from a sheriff's office crisis negotiation team to a multi-agency uh, team. I currently hold the federal special law enforcement certification. I have been cross-deputized by the sheriff's office in Humboldt County. We're working on getting me uh, cross-deputized in Del Norte County. And uh, I worked for four and a half years for the Blue Lake Rancheria Tribal Police Department. And when this opportunity came up to apply for the UROC, MMIP investigator position, I, I really struggled with it, not because I didn't want to do the, the job, because I really did, but because of my loyalty to Blue Lake. But uh, I feel like in some ways, maybe this was my purpose that I've been waiting for in law enforcement, so I look forward to doing it. I also forgot to say that I worked in courts for the sheriff's office multiple times. And, yeah. Uh, you're aware yeah. of that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in the interest of disclosure, um, uh, my audience does know that I have a prior uh, history as a law enforcement officer. And I worked with Julie as a sheriff's deputy in uh, actually many situations, but starting out, we were both in Southern Humboldt County, which at that time in the late nineties was a fairly lawless place. And I think that that is one um, aspect of looking at the amount of missing and murdered indigenous persons in Northern California is that Northern California has a problem with missing persons in general, but, and, and it's much higher than anywhere else in the state. But when it comes to missing and murdered indigenous people, it's actually off the charts is my feeling. And I am wondering, Rosemary, if you could speak to framing, why is this an issue? Why is it important? What are these statistics that we're talking about? And why, I mean, to be frank, why should we care what's what's going on up here? Absolutely. I think, you know, one way um, to frame the statistics is just how disproportionate it is when you compare this crisis in indigenous communities versus non-indigenous communities. So nationally, uh, according to the Department of Justice, there are more than 5,000 Native American and Alaska Native women missing. Um, there has not been a, a big comprehensive attempt to make sure that data is accurate. Um, so that is a, a rough number. And mm -hmm. then to talk about 
Wyatt is disproportionate. Four out of five Native American and Alaska Native women experience violence in their lifetimes and more than one in three in the last year. So homicide is actually the third leading cause of death for indigenous women and girls. And that in and of itself is staggering. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's staggering. And, and I don't know if this is an accurate statistic because I need to double check it. But my understanding is that you are 30 times more likely to be a victim of violence as an indigenous woman or a native Alaskan woman than you are as a white woman. I just find that almost incomprehensible. Um, and I don't think that people realize it. One of the things that was really staggering to me looking at this issue prior to this interview is that I did know a little bit about it when I was in law enforcement, but not a lot. I wasn't really aware of the scope of the issue until uh, I started working in social work. So when I started working for um, Open Door as a case manager, I started to actually understand that the missing and murdered indigenous persons was a real movement, but it seemed to be a movement that only some people were aware of. And I'm wondering if you can speak to, you know, is this something that's widely known? I know that you have recently partnered with the U.S. Marshals Service, which seems like, okay, maybe there's a federal re response that's starting to happen to this issue. But what is the history of actually getting anybody to pay attention to what's happening um, in Indian country? What's What's been the response to that? I think that um, awareness of this issue is growing nationally. And I think it's the result of hard-fought uh, campaigns by indigenous groups and kind of grassroots awareness on this issue. So there's been the Not Invisible Commission, Operation Lady Justice. Those are both federal um, initiatives to try to address this issue and look into the causes and potential solutions. Um, but the you know impetus for the U.S. Marshals Pilot Project is actually uh, an interesting story because one of the U.S. Marshals personnel who is a policy specialist attended our um, MMIP policy summit that the Yurok tribe hosted in October in Arcata. And through attending that event, um, you know, made a connection with us at the tribe and that U.S. Marshals personnel said, hey, you know, we're looking into whether or not it would be appropriate for us to try to support this issue through our limited jurisdiction. Would you be interested in maybe being the first pilot site to see how um, we could support you? So, you know, I don't, I don't know that that is indicative of a broad uh, push federally for everyone to become involved in this issue, but absolutely it is progress. Um, that it's not just the tribes talking about this and, you know, even at certain levels of the Department of Justice, et cetera, there is an interest in helping uplift this issue and, and connect folks on the ground with resources. Um, and that's really what has been the result of our project with the Marshall Service. They have been um, subject matter experts. We can bounce ideas off of them. They can connect us with folks who are uh, you know, situated in a, in a position or organization that may be helpful to us because 
we are building something that doesn't exist. And so oftentimes, right. you know, we really need to uh, solicit some input from folks um, who are expert in the area. Yeah. And I, I don't think it can be overstated how much the Yurok tribe has invested in the creation of, of your role, of Julie's role, of creating a toolkit that can be shared. Um, because, it, you know, honestly, I, f I think, and this is my opinion as a, just as a person, but it seems like the tribes have basically come to the point of saying like, we're going to have to do this and other people are going to have to follow because if we wait for other people to do this, we'll be waiting forever. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that this is what is felt so acutely within the indigenous community that the tribe wasn't going to sit around and wait for the federal government to come and save them. Do you right. know what I mean? This right. is absolutely, yeah, it is so felt acutely in this community. And, you know, it's interesting when we had that policy summit in October in Arcata, um, somebody, one of the advocates put a question to the audience of, you know, a couple hundred people who has been affected personally by this mm -hmm. MMIP crisis and almost every indigenous hand in the room went up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, and it really it it's like uh you throw a pebble in the water and it just radiates out throughout the whole community. That's how these cases are felt. These are family members, um, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, loved ones. And when it's not just one of your family members, but a few of your family members or your friend or your babysitter from when you were growing up, it really starts to feel like um it is everywhere in this yes. community. And so it is nice to see that the, you know, certain agencies within the federal government are really starting to say, how can we help? And is, are you getting that from a, from the state government as well? Is there a response from local agencies that want to be more informed and responsive to these cases? Or do you find that it's kind of a hands-off like, oh, well, that's not our problem sort of uh, attitude? Well, I think that the California Department of Justice Office of Native American Affairs has been pretty integral in helping um, navigate this issue. Um, there are also certain lawmakers like um, Assemblymember James Ramos, who is the only Indigenous member of the California um, House of Representatives, uh, who have really championed this issue. And so I don't want to paint with such a broad brush to say no one from the state is helping. Mm -hmm. um, we have some very supportive justice partners and we have been able to strategically um, work with those connections to try to uplift certain issues. In the county, um, I'm sure you read in the year three report from the Take Skuisa Anewochek MMIP program that Sheriff Hansel participated in an interview um, so did the district attorney for Humboldt County. And so there is some collaboration and some partnership. But what is interesting about Public Law 280 is that, you know, the state has jurisdiction over the reservation, criminal jurisdiction. Right. But when that criminal jurisdiction was given to the state, the state was not consulted or given additional resources to help with their new expanded jurisdiction. And so, you know, we live in this community. Julie and I live here in Humboldt County. We know that it's not as though the sheriff's office has some 
Cadillac budget and they're just deciding not to, you know, right. go and staff the reservation. We know that there is a nationwide staffing shortage in law enforcement right now. Like it's not unique to Humboldt County. And, you know, as both of you know, from being at the sheriff's office, sometimes there are only a few deputies patrolling this expansive geographic region. Yeah, it's actually, Um, it's kind of frightening. There were, there were definitely times when I came into the briefing room and it would be me and two other deputies and a sergeant. And this is a huge county. Um, But I want to go back just briefly and I apologize for interrupting, but I I don't know that my audience understands PL280. So I just want us to um, just explain what what that law is, how it came to be, and how it affects these cases, because I think it's really important. And I had not even heard of it before I read the reports out of your program. Sure. Yeah. So Public Law 280 was passed in 1953, and the tribes opposed it at that time. Um, but they passed it anyway. And so that law expanded state criminal jurisdiction over tribal lands. But as I was mentioning, it didn't come with any extra money to help patrol that new geographic area, that new jurisdiction. And the Yurok Reservation alone is 55,000 acres. Mm -hmm. And um, so Public Law 280, there were only six states that it was mandated you know, imposed on, including California. And in states that are not public law 280 states, the jurisdiction either belongs to the tribe or the federal government, right? But in California, as a public law 280 state, it belongs to the state, it belongs to the county. And our reservation is on two counties. And so instead of saying, if it's not the tribe, it's the feds, it's if it's not the tribe, it might be Humboldt County or it might be Delmark County or right. it could be both the tribe and Humboldt County or both the tribe <clears throat> and Delmark County. So public law 280, it, it's not black and white. All jurisdiction belongs to the state. There is something called concurrent criminal jurisdiction. And what that essentially says is that if the perpetrator of a crime is native on the reservation, the tribe has criminal jurisdiction concurrent to state criminal jurisdiction. But Mm. that would require the tribe to have its own criminal code, the ability to actually prosecute those cases, have full jury trials, incarcerate someone. Plus that jurisdiction, that concurrent criminal jurisdiction is essentially only misdemeanors and non-violent, non-serious violent offenses. And so- you know, even to get to that point where you're asserting concurrent criminal jurisdiction is a process. And then once you get it, there's no promise that the state won't also proceed on a criminal case. So I'll just explain it as a a hypothetical. So say you have a tribal member who commits a vandalism on the reservation the state has criminal jurisdiction over that vandalism. So they could file it in state criminal court, the district attorney, say, of Humboldt County as a 594, PC 594 vandalism. If the tribe was also exercising concurrent criminal jurisdiction, the tribe could 
also file that vandalism criminally against that tribal member, and it would not be subject to double jeopardy because they're wow. two separate sovereigns, right? Just like how the state <laughs> can amazing. charge you with something and the federal government can charge you with that same thing, and it's not double jeopardy because they're two separate sovereigns, right? Right. And so even if we had concurrent criminal jurisdiction, we would need to have a conversation of, are we really going to be that punitive to our tribal members? I feel like we would likely only exercise concurrent criminal jurisdiction with an agreement from the district attorney that they would defer to us to prosecute it because otherwise we're actually being more punitive to tribal members than a similarly situated citizen of California with no tribal affiliation. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I feel like what that sounds like as an outsider with a little knowledge about the criminal justice system is there's a lot of cracks that people can fall through in all of that. Like who's taking responsibility? Who's following up? Who's investigating? You know, I, I think that the um, an interesting thing, and I think, Julie, you and I were both with the sheriff's department when this happened, when the sheriff's department decided to cross-deputize the folks in Hoopa and the Hoopa tribal department. And I, I don't know if, if the general audience recognizes that tribal police departments don't have the power to arrest unless they're deputized by the sheriff of that County. Is that, is that an accurate way of, of talking about it, Rosemary? Yes. Which is why I have to work on getting cross deputized with Del Norte County because the Yurok reservation is in both counties, Humboldt and Del Norte. So to be able to do, and it's not necessarily that every case I'm going to be working on is uh, criminal in nature, mm-hmm. but uh, if it is, I still need to be able to function right. uh, as a law enforcement person, but that's right. really secondary to what I'm doing. Well, I was going to ask you, Julie, especially since you have this history of working with the Blue Lake Rancheria, um, what is the attitude, I mean, historically, the attitude towards law enforcement from tribal members has been, you know, very guarded for historically really good reasons. And is that still the case now? What are you finding in terms of talking to people about wanting to get these things resolved? Are they willing to work with law enforcement more now? Or are you just being the bridge between those two things? I think I'm going to be acting more as a bridge in regards to that. There's still a lot of mistrust with law enforcement and I tentative statement of, I think it's doesn't matter whether it's tribal or the County. I just think that because of decades of mistrust, because of mistreatment mm-hmm. that one of the things I will be working on is building up that trust to try to get people to give me information to find some of these folks. So it is a real issue as far as people's attitude towards law enforcement. And I don't necessarily think it's unfounded. I'm not trying to say that. It's just part of what I have to work with. Yeah. I think since I am mm, not in law enforcement any longer, I would characterize the attitude of law enforcement towards tribal issues as being either um, either I almost want to say um hands off or not caring or the 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 feeling has been that these this these agencies don't care about us they don't have our best interests in mind and when they do deal with us they're they're not 
tactful, respectful. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that can be a law, law enforcement attitude in general, but I, I definitely think at least having worked here in Humboldt County where we have such a large population of indigenous people, um, historically there are reasons that they would mistrust law enforcement. And I don't necessarily disagree with you on that. Uh, but yes, I will be working very hard on trying to create a relationship with tribal members, not just Yurok, but we have multiple tribes in Humboldt and Del Norte County, and I will be working to try to make relationships with those folks as well. I've been in Humboldt County since I was 12, and I uh, was I lived in the Eel River Valley, and uh, I do have a lot of folks that I know that are indigenous, and I'm hoping that I can build those relationships. Yeah. Oh, well, I think if anybody could, it would be you. Um, that's the reputation that you have bring, you know, that you're bringing into this position. And I, I also think it's important, and this was noted in the reports from the Sovereign Bodies Institute, that there's a lot of overlap. The, there, within these communities, people have cousins who are Hoopa, they have cousins who are Wailaki, they have cousins who, you know, or they're married into that, or there's a lot of overlap between these tribes. So it's not like, it's not like you're only dealing with uh, missing persons or murdered persons from the Yurok tribe. These, like Rosemary was saying, there's a ripple effect because these communities are, are very close and very aware of one another and have been for literally thousands of years. Agreed. Yeah. All right, we are at the shout out. The shout out is a person, place, thing, idea, or product that I'm super excited about and I want to share with you. It might be an affiliate link. Often, I mean, honestly, 99% of the time it's not. It's just something that I recommend, I think is exciting. And I love the idea of people telling each other great things that they have found. So today I want to talk about Scribd. I am a grad student. I have an insane amount of reading to do every week. It's mind boggling. And uh, I found Scribd. I was turned on to it by another student, I think two years ago, and it has saved my bacon. So Scribd is a digital library. It's a monthly subscription that gives you instant access to eBooks, audiobooks, articles, podcasts, even sheet music and documents like people's notes and PDFs that they've uploaded. It's um, it's like having your local library and like a Netflix and your favorite bookstore and you know that big box store that you don't really want to spend money at. It's like they all got together and had a digital baby. That script, it's really useful. I've found probably 80% of the books that I read are on script. And the other part that I have to order, I try to order through um, Abe Books, which is another shout out. I'll do some other time. But script um, has a referral program where you can get 60 days free if you want to try it. All you need to do is go over to the show notes at www.avoiceofherown.com. 
in the show notes, there's a referral code that will give you 60 days free. And I think after 60 days, you'll want to subscribe. I can't remember the exact pricing. It's less than $15 a month, which to me is completely worth it. So check it out, scribd.com. Okay, that's your shout out. So I'm wondering, um, Rosemary and, and Julie, whoever wants to take this lead, but can you tell me about the the program? And I know I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but I'm going to try the Tokiskoi Soniwacek project. And sure, that is, I can talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> this is a big, big project, and I, I'm really interested to see wh- how you developed it. Yeah, so uh, I also struggle with Yurok language pronunciation, and it is definitely something that I am working on. And one thing that is very cool about working for the Yurok tribe is that there is a Yurok language program that, um, you know, we're all able to attend to learn how to say basic things like Skienakoi for good morning or Waklau for thank you and, and learn because the culture is so protective of the language because it mm-hmm. was uh, there was such an effort to systematically destroy the culture, preserving the language and trying to use it in our everyday speak. I think is is a really good way of honoring that culture and that preservation. Um, my understanding of how to pronounce it, and again, I'm sure mine is not perfect either, <laughs> but it's Ka Ki Skui Saha Newochek program. Okay, and what that means is. I will see you again in a good way. Mm-hmm. And that name was developed by the Yurok language program. So by way of background, uh, in 2020, the Yurok tribal court launched the Ta Ki Skui Sa Anewochek program, or I will see you again in a good way, or MMIP program. Um, our chief judge, Abby Avenanti, who, you know, is a force of nature in her own right. right. She was the first indigenous woman to ever pass the California bar exam. The first indigenous woman to ever be, um, you know, elevated to the superior court in the state of California. She is our chief judge. And together with Dr. Blythe George, who is a Yurok citizen and received her doctorate from Harvard, Harvard university um, came together to create this project. And they worked with sovereign bodies um, and developed the year one, two, and three reports, building off each previous year's report. And Dr. Blythe um, really understands data analysis in a way that uh, I never could hope to. So mm-hmm. she led this project with a couple of researchers, and this predated my um, position being created at the Yurok tribe because my position and the prosecutor's office was actually a recommendation uh, coming out of the year one and two reports. So my understanding is that project was created to kind of take a, uh, a glance at what is really involved in this crisis. Why is this happening? Why is it concentrated in this region? Who are our MMIP cases? And then the, um, the first couple of reports really outlined to the best that they could um, the numbers and of what is the state of the data? Why is this data difficult to even button down in the first place? 
Um, but the recommendation from year two basically said, you know, we need um, advocates, we need uh, specifically people working on liaising between law enforcement and prosecutors and victim services and the DOJ. We need to advocate for policy. So coming out of that recommendation, the tribe created the prosecutor's job description, which is the one that I said I started in July of 2021. And then learning how much we really need to approach this on a multi-front effort, you know, not just, we can't litigate our way out of this crisis. We can't advocate right. our way out of this crisis. We need investigation, litigation, policy advocacy. We need victim services, community awareness, um, money, right. you know, that's a real budget is a real thing. And right. like I said, my position was hundred percent grant funded. My whole department now is hundred percent grant funded which means we need to go and identify the funds to do this work. And we have been extremely lucky in being able to generate uh, grant funds for this work. And I think it speaks to the fact that there is an appetite to assist in this crisis. And for folks who don't know how to do that, supporting through grant funding is definitely a first step. So. We have federal funding from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Coordinated Tribal um, Solicitation Grant. We also have received an award from Measure Z, which is a Humboldt County mm -hmm. Public Safety Fund. And we were the only tribal government to receive funding um, last year to help support our program. We also got a generous donation from the Philanthropic arm of the San Manuel Band of Mission Indians about mm -hmm. uh, $350,000 to help get the investigator program up and off the ground. And so I think what that indicates is there is a willingness to help from <coughs> tribes, federal, local, and that's one way that people can really be supportive of us is, is through our funding solicitations for grants. That's really, that actually feels hopeful that people are, are willing to put that money in place because one of part of what you're doing in this program is developing a toolkit, right? The, a toolkit that can be shared not only with other tribes, but with all law enforcement uh, across the board, right? This is something that could be useful to any agency that comes in contact with these kinds of cases. Is that accurate? And can you tell yeah, me what the toolkit is about? Of course, yeah. The toolkit, um, I, I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning when you asked, you know, what it makes us excited to do this work. And it's that we hope to be able to empower other tribes to do this work. And so if we can show, well, this is how we found out this, the landscape of the situation. These are how we built relationships with our justice partners. We got a prosecutor in place. She got an investigator in place. If we can outline those steps for folks and identify for them, this is how we corralled funding from these different agencies. Um, you know, hopefully we can empower folks to do the same. Um, and just to kind of take a, a small step back, you know, one of the ideas of having a prosecutor's office, even though we are not yet asserting criminal jurisdiction, 
that is ultimately something we'd like to do. We want our own criminal code. We want to exercise special tribal criminal jurisdiction, you know, through the Violence Against Women Act and litigate our own domestic violence cases and those types of things. But one of the basic purposes of having a criminal litigator is that I am experienced in the state criminal justice system. And if they're the ones who are going to be prosecuting a homicide case and it's sitting there cold, Mm -hmm. I think the tribe through what they learned through the process of generating these reports realized, oh, we need someone who speaks that language. We can't just have an attorney who specializes in um, tribal law or in tribal court know how to advocate to a state or county prosecutor to get a case actually prosecuted. And so myself coming from the criminal justice system, my deputy was a Humboldt County deputy prosecutor and a Humboldt County deputy public defender. And so, you know, we really have had experience here locally in the criminal justice system and are leveraging relationships and our understanding of that system to try to situate our investigator in a way that hopefully we can now go to those agencies and say, look, we'd like you to take a second look at this case. We think we know what happened here. Um, You know, and hopefully our experience as criminal litigators uh, gives us some credibility in those conversations. Yeah. One of the things I really got from those reports is that there needs to be a, a more coordinated response to these things. It can't just be oh, this is your problem or, oh, this is our problem and we don't have the resources. So, you know, essentially the folks like the, in year three's report, um, there was a case that happened during the collection of the data and of the synthesis of that data. Um, And I don't know if I'm pronouncing your last name right, but this was Emily Risling, Risling, Uh Risling. And, And so, you could see that she was sometimes uh, on the Hoopa Reservation, sometimes on the Yurok Reservations, and sometimes in McKinleyville, which is a Sheriff's Department jurisdiction. And so if we had it where only whoever was jurisdiction she was in that week paid attention, it's like, that's not how people live. They're not just in one jurisdiction. These are, these are cases that have ripples and have uh, like you said, throughout communities, and it's not just one community. So it seems like part of what is happening on your end is making it more likely that there can be some kind of coordinated effort between the state and the tribes in terms of f- prosecuting these cases, not just letting them go cold, not just letting them sit there and be untended. Yeah, I definitely, um, I'm wary of of framing it as they let it go cold or they left it untended because I do understand the limits of working in county government as well. Um, But I do agree with, you know, the part of your statement for sure, where we're saying we can help and advocate and make noise about a case. And if we're, uh, you know, able to expend our own resources to help investigate something um, that they may not have the resources to actively investigate, I think that is why people are willing to partner with us and develop these relationships because they don't want a bunch of missing persons cases sitting unsolved either, right? And so what's great about Julie's position is that she is the dedicated MMIP investigator. She is not gonna be 
called out for service to go investigate an arson or a vandalism or, you know, DUI. She's focused on the MMIP cases, whereas our justice partners, even our own tribal police, they don't have the bandwidth to only focus on a cold case, right? Or Mm -hmm. an active missing persons case because they're actively, you know, on the beat, answering calls for service, going out into the community. So I think that is um, a relief to some of our partners in justice because they know that now there is a dedicated resource looking at these things. I I don't think that anyone um, relishes having, you know, unsolved cases sitting on their desk. And so I would hope that everyone will continue to bring us in and very much welcome the work we're doing in partnership kind of say, hey, we're not pointing fingers at you. We're rolling up our own sleeves and hopefully um, we can meet you at the finish line. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that perspective. That makes sense. I'm curious, um, and Julie and Rosemary, both of you, maybe you could answer this. Like, so starting out with this position, Julie, like how many cases do you have? How many, like what, what is the depth of like what it is that you're looking at? I know I'm sure you're starting out slowly, but what what's waiting for you on your desk essentially <laughs> well um at this point we already have 15 cases earmarked mm-hmm. and <clears throat> some of those are newer cases some of them are older cases i am going to dive as deep as i can get away with as far as finding uh cold cases and taking a you know a fresh look at them because Decades old cases, as it's been uh, already expressed here, is not something that most departments have the luxury of looking at, mm-hmm. but hopefully um, with fresh eyes and if they've collected certain evidence and with advances in technology, maybe we can come up with something in regards to those cases. Also, something I forgot to mention The California Department of Justice Attorney General's Office, Office of Native American Affairs, reached out to me while I was with Blue Lake Mm -hmm. uh, to have an event, uh, California Missing in Northern California, and it is involving all 28 tribes, hopefully, on April 22nd. In that event, they will be collecting, hopefully, uh, buckle swabs to collect DNA to put into the MUP system, the missing and unidentified persons system, because there are uh, unidentified folks in that system that maybe we can close cases right away, but also it'll be explaining uh, different resources that are available, victim assistance, uh, the new feather alert system, um, NamUs, new statistics that are being collected as far as indigenous people. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, so to say, I want to say that the state is addressed, are trying to address this, attempting to address this in some fashion. And again, it's going to, it's one of a, it's a first for the state of California. So that's very exciting. Yeah, it's a, another one that may, might be a template for them to use in other places. I know that uh, I'm working with Mary Lopez Kiefer uh, out of the, <clears throat> ONA, the the Office of Native American Affairs, and uh, Blue Lake, which is facilitating this, and Yurok, which is allowing me to continue to work on this event, even though I'm no longer with Blue Lake. Um, So it's it's a collaborative effort, but I think it's a good thing. But with that, you know, uh, 
it's getting me started in some cases as well. So uh, to come back around to that, yeah, I think because there are a couple of these cases uh, are cases that weren't reported, mm -hmm. and that is a big issue with the statistics on missing and murdered Indigenous people. Is there is no real accurate amount. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I was going to actually ask about that. So part of the issue with the data that we have is it sounds like it's probably drastically underreported. Is that accurate? Because a lot of things yes. don't get reported. And also, can Rosemary, can you speak to the, the systems issue? Like how 62% of the cases weren't report, like they weren't in one of the systems. I, I just found that sort of confusing. There's different different systems of missing people, but they are yes. not connected. Yes. Can you explain that for my sure. audience? Thank you. Yeah, so <laughs> welcome to my nightmare. Right. Um, this is where, you know, unpacking the data is so difficult because I am not a data person. I am a criminal law person. So that's why it was so nice to have Dr. Blythe um, kind of spearheading the the, pro the year one, two, and three projects, because she really understands the data. But what I do understand is systemically why things are not being captured in the data, which is, for example, underreporting. So, you know, sometimes um, folks will be more um, like they roam, you know, mm -hmm. some people roam and they'll be reported missing when they may actually just be away from the community. And if someone tends to be someone who is in and out of contact with their family and in and out of the area and lives in very remote places, sometimes we don't know they're missing because someone right. will say, oh, she tends to go off for three and four months at a time. You know, so that's one issue is if someone doesn't necessarily have a pattern, it is harder to know when they're not following their pattern. Mm -hmm. The other problem is uh, the the inverse, where someone goes running away, like, you know, some juveniles who are in a, a bad way will leave their placement or their home and be kind of like a, a chronic runaway. Um, not to put the onus on the juvenile, obviously, for running away from a bad situation, but I just don't think there's a better way to frame it. Um, and so we might have someone who was listed as missing and then has been home twice since and is missing again. And then we have to figure out, did they ever come home from when they were first declared missing? Um, so that just makes the data harder to get your hands on. But some of the broader systemic issues are misclassification. So, you know, oftentimes when someone is being identified visually, they may be classified as Asian Pacific Islander or Latino right. or Latina when they're in fact Native American or Alaskan Native. Um, so that's an issue. So if you find remains, um, racial misclassification, right? So it might be listed as a Latina woman when you're actually looking for a right. Native American woman. Um, but one of the other issues with the data is some cases are ruled as a suicide or ruled as a natural cause death when there were in fact suspicious circumstances. Mm -hmm. So there have also been instances of, oh, this was ruled a suicide, but the family knows that the victim had 
strangulation marks on them. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if someone is sold dope that has fentanyl in it, is it a suicide or is it an accidental drug overdose or was some, right? you know, right? So this, it's, yeah. it's hard to piece apart. It's not column A, column B, column C, column D. And that's why it's been so hard to get a real grip on the actual numbers because every single person that I've met has been affected at least in some way, if not their direct relative, someone they grew up with, someone who babysat them, someone they went to school with has gone missing. But those numbers of people's anecdotal experience don't seem to be reflected in the data. And it is because of these issues that we're discussing, misclassification, uh, people uh, disregarding suspicious circumstances sometimes, you know, maybe someone did have drugs in their system, but we're also strangled. Right. Right. And so that's really what we're trying to drill down into is to say, who are the cases that we know about? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what Julie's working on now. And what I can say is there has been such an appetite for her position as such a need for it for so long that already in the three short weeks that she's been onboarded and, you know, still getting her computer and her phone and a key to the office and people are calling to make a tip. I love Where that. Where is the investigator? We've heard you hired the MMIP investigator. When can I come and tell the investigator what I know about this case? Oh. And I mean, that's great, but it just shows like, man, we've got our work cut out for us right. because there's been so much historical neglect on this issue. Right. Yes. Uh, and also, I specifically was curious about what is the deal with how there is the National Missing Persons Database, but then there's the, like, Indigenous Persons Database, but they're not the same. Like, there was this whole protocol of if you don't enter something manually, it's not I, I didn't even grasp all of that from the report. From the report. It seemed really confusing. Like yeah. every department has to manually make sure that they are entering all of these different systems because it doesn't happen. It, automatically. it, it doesn't happen automatically. Can you yeah. uh, elaborate a little bit on that sure. just briefly? Yeah. That the just reason blew my I mind. Hear, it sounds like I'm chuckling just because I'm, as you're describing it, I'm reliving what it was like during that, uh, Emily Risling case to that was that was a few months after I started and so that was my first real active missing persons case while building up the office of the tribal prosecutor at the Yurok tribe so um, the role that my office was played was going to play was not uh, delineated at that point so I just I'm chuckling to myself remembering what it was like right. to learn this all in real time. Um, so basically, there is NamUs, which is the National Missing and Unidentified Persons Database. But there's also MUPS, right, which is what right. Julie was talking about, the missing and unidentified persons. Um, and so some of them are law enforcement only. Okay. Like MUPS, my understanding, and Julie, correct me if I'm wrong, is that only law enforcement can enter into MUPS. That's, that's true, I think. Yeah. But when it yes. comes to NamUs... You can make a civilian account on NamUs and enter something, and or you can have a law enforcement account on NamUs and enter something. But my understanding is there is current currently no requirement that everything from MUPS be 
duplicatively entered into NamUs. And so okay. when I had that case, the Emily Risen case, and we were all you know, <coughs> collaborating on it and working on it um, with tribal police and Office of Emergency Services and the Sheriff's Department, basically the Sheriff's Department had the missing persons case for Emily. They're mm-hmm. the ones who had the report, the missing persons case. But because the tribal police department is cross-deputized with the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office, the point of contact for the missing persons case was the Yurok tribal police. Mm -hmm. So what I sat down to do was to make sure that Emily was listed on as many databases as possible. Because if she had um, left the jurisdiction, I wanted to make sure that the information was available to anybody. So... I worked with the Yurok Tribal Police to list her on NamUs because that doesn't happen automatically. Well, then there's also the California missing persons list through the Attorney General's website. Which is separate. Which is separate from both of those, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. And you would think that by having a missing persons case, it would then automatically be listed on the attorney general's missing persons website. But that is not the case. You actually have to contact the attorney general's missing persons website, and then they will verify with the law enforcement agency that took the missing persons report that that is in fact accurate and then post it on there. Well, the agencies that I was working with, did not know that that extra step was required to have it appear on a public facing database. Because again, the police need to make sure that other police have the information to then say, you are now responsible for making sure it's also on any public facing database was, you know, beyond the scope of acting in an exigent emergency. And so we then figured that out. So that's, I think what was captured in the report is that I, was literally sitting there phoning and emailing around trying to figure out how to connect A to B and get it and, listed. And B to C. And, yes. And without it being public facing, think of all the people. I mean, somebody like Emily who did travel, you know, not everybody reads the news. Not everybody is up, up on those things. And so how, how would they know, you know, if there wasn't some sort of public facing website information, you know, how are you going to get tips of, oh, I did see her or, oh yeah, I remember her, blah, blah, blah. It's just, to me, it's like, this is another place where I'm like, okay, you can really see how things fall through the cracks because they're not connected. There's not a sense of, you know, connecting the attorney general's office with local law enforcement, with tribal connections. They're not, that that's not an automatic thing. And I, I can't, I'm, I am a little like, wow, about that. (laughs) Right. And that is, again, why Public Law 280 is just such a anomaly. I mean, the fact that, you know, we are dealing with navigating this jurisdictional maze when other states don't have to do the same thing. And, you know, I'm sure there are differing opinions on PL 280. I'm sure there are people who think, You know, there are benefits to it that I might not be highlighting right now. But one thing I think is very clear is that there needs to be a study or a hearing or some research into what the 
outcome disparities are between public law 280 and non-public law 280 states. Yeah. I would like to know, without having to figure out who's on first and what county I'm in and what agency to work with that county and through our police and luckily we're deputized and what if this other agency isn't and, you know, X, Y, Z and Ray, Ray, Ray. I mean, man, I just, maybe the grass is always greener, but I'm thinking it might be a little bit easier for folks who aren't in a public law 280 state. And I think that the federal government as the ones who impose public law 280 on the states it really should be their responsibility to start doing an assessment of, is there a disparity of outcomes between PL280 and non-PL280 states? And is this actually putting a more of a burden on tribes than states that aren't PL280? And, you know, again, I can't answer that question just through my own experience, but I think that someone should be looking at that. I think PL280 is an antiquated uh law anyway yeah it, things have you know progress happens right and most certainly at this point you know when it was created there was not a lot of law on reservations but that's changed and they're not allowing the reservations to take care of things that they're they could take care of yeah so it still overburdens outside agencies, but it, it also frustrates the tribes themselves. And that, Julie, is that something that I can put on the record? Like, do yeah, you absolutely. Need it? Okay. So we view policy advocacy as an important front in this kind of battle against this crisis. And so we have litigation, investigation, and our policy work. And so our justice policy lead was officially brought on last year. Um, it's an attorney by the name of Catherine Catcher, and she's based down in the Bay Area. But she has been really identifying um, opportunities to advocate for changes in policy that we see as contributing to the conditions that allow for the MMIP crisis to exist. So, you know, there are certain systemic failures or policy failures or conditions that really create these vulnerabilities that make people susceptible or vulnerable to becoming missing or murdered or one of these disproportionate statistics. And so, for example, um, one of the first things that we really supported was the feather alert, the creation of the feather alert so i'm sure you've heard of amber alert and mm -hmm. that's when you know you have cause to believe that a child has been abducted and they're actively in danger and the amber alert can be issued through the california highway patrol um so washington state created something called a uh, silver alert i believe it was called and i think it may um be specific to uh, indigenous people, um, basically to say when you have an endangered missing person over 60, that is the silver alert. I'm trying to remember um, what they called their indigenous persons alert. It might've just been called a missing indigenous persons alert, 
that was modeled after their silver alert, which was for endangered elderly people. Mm-hmm. So we advocated that something like that be created in the state of California, considering, you know, the incidence of MMIP cases here. And so uh, Assemblymember Ramos, you know, really spearheaded that effort to get the um, feather alert created. And what the feather alert essentially says is if you have an endangered missing indigenous person and you've tried to use your tribal resources to address it, you can activate that alert through CHP. Okay. And that was a big step because it's only the second state in the nation to make a specific alert for an endangered uh, or missing indigenous person. Wow. So yeah, that was a, a great first step. And then some of the other things that we've been doing is like budget advocacy. So uh, the Yurok tribe, our chairman, along with several other tribal councils and chairpersons across the state are advocating for a $200 million budget ask from the governor's office to address the crisis of MMIP. Um, It has been historically underfunded Mm -hmm. and there was a discussion of a a competitive grant program of about $12 million for MMIP. But if you look at the 108 federally recognized tribes in the state of California and divide $12 million through them over three years, it's like $65,000 a tribe. Yeah, it's not. It sounds like a big number, but when you start to look at the actual numbers of missing persons and and cases, it's it's really not like it's not it's not some huge number when you think about all the tribes in the state of California and how many missing persons we have. Well, and I think it's also important to point out that the Yurok tribe has a tribal court and tribal police who are cross-deputized with the sheriff's department and now a tribal prosecutor. A lot of our other tribes in this region do not have those uh, infrastructures in place. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, again, go back to how this, this effort that you're, that you're working on is really sort of leading the way um, and, and making an example of what's possible and what's needed. I, I want to be um, conscientious of your time. I'm wondering one thing that we didn't touch on, and let me know if you think we have time to do this now, is just to talk about why are these cases happening here and what is the relationship between, you know, the historical trauma of these tribal members and what's continuing to happen to them? Is that too big of a subject to touch on now or is that something that we could talk about briefly? I think I could definitely address some of what I view as the issue. Okay. Um, So in our region, as you know, it is very rural, right? I don't know if you've ever been out to Pequon or Wichpec. I have been, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's truly, I, I don't think people grasp how rural this part of California is because people who are not in California or even in Southern California, they haven't been up here and they don't know that it's literally a lot of these places are one road in and one road out. Right. That's it. Yeah. Yes, and, they're and when two we lanes. say rural, we don't mean sprawling flat prairies like on right. five when you're driving down through right. agriculture country to go down to Los Angeles. I mean, it is rugged mountain terrain, (laughs) redwoods, old growth forests, a combination of state parks, national parks, tribal reservation land. I mean, it is, like you said, one road in and one road out. And if a tree falls over that road, 
That's it. You're not getting your emergency services out there right. until that tree is moved. Yeah. And so that really adds this additional hurdle where some of these communities on our reservation are so remote that if you don't have a car, you're not going to be able to get out of there until someone who has a car is able to give you a ride out of there. Your phone might not work, mm -hmm. right? And so that is definitely an additional challenge for us is that when people want to come and get lost, they come to our neck of the woods to get lost, right? Because right. if you don't want someone to find you here, they're not <laughs> going to find you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that is definitely um, a challenge. Uh, you know, I don't want to blame the historical cannabis industry here, you know, for any issues on the reservation. But I do think uh, we can't ignore the fact that there is a history of, um, you know, lawbreakers and people living in shadows and, and um, doing it's those a legacy. Of in our area. Yeah, it's a legacy. Yeah. And it's a legacy that still has repercussions. Yes, there's a legacy. There are people who know that they can evade the eyes of law enforcement if they're deep in the woods. Um, like I said, a lot of the land is owned by state or national park um, or the reservation. And so again, who's policing it? How often do they go there? Um, so that definitely contributes to the situation. But when it comes to historical trauma, I mean, intergenerational trauma is a real thing. And mm -hmm. not only was there violence by colonizers, but subsequent state-sanctioned violence where children were kidnapped from their families and taken to residential schools or boarding schools and literally had their culture and their language abused out of them. And what that does to someone and their trust of systems and their trust of government and their ability to feel safe and build community, I think it continues to ripple through. Um, and that is why it's important that our tribal police department uh, really embrace a trauma-informed perspective. Yes. And we are fortunate that we don't have to try to convince our police to do that. Like that is something coming from the chief of police, Greg O'Rourke himself. He wants a trauma informed model because he understands that if you're approaching someone aggressively who is already traumatized, it may escalate the situation uh, and make it appear, you know, more hostile than it otherwise would need to be. You need to understand why someone is behaving the way they're behaving. Um, but moreover, part of the issue with the rural nature of the community is the lack of services. So say you have someone who is in mental health crisis and tribal police make an assessment and say, I think this person might be a danger to themselves and others. I need to go 5150 them. Well, now, you know, they're driving all the way from Witchpack to Eureka to Sempervirens to 5150 someone. Well, when they drop them off, say Sempervirens, which is our local county mental health facility, say they determine that that person is not 5150. Well, they subsequently release that person later in the evening. That person does not have a ride back to Witchpeg. Right. Right. The tribal police, you know, can't 
stake out the Sempervirans just in case they decide to release someone before a 72 hour hold is over. Or, I mean, that is part of the issue is that, you know, how do you effectively serve a community with limited resources that's so rural when your services can be two hours away? Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is something I have a couple thoughts. One is that historical intergenerational trauma is a real thing. I talked about it several episodes ago. And one of the ways that we know that it's real for people who might think that this is something woo woo is that when the children of Holocaust survivors were studied, they had actual genetic changes that had happened that were not happening for the control group. It's a real thing. So the, the, that kind of intergenerational trauma results in people who are literally enmeshed in a system that is continuing to either evoke or inflame or repeat these things. It's it's something that it is very real and I don't know if people grok that. With that being said, the issue of of dual diagnosis is something that's another really big problem. So you take somebody to Sempervirans and they say, well, we can't treat them for whatever mental health crisis there happen is happening because they are such they are also using some kind of substance. Well, if you take a trauma-informed approach, you find that most people who are using substances are doing it because they are self-medicating the trauma that they already have. And so if you tell them we can't treat you, you're basically just putting them in a position where now they're actually more in danger than they would have been if they'd stayed in their community because they're walking around Eureka. Like, you know, who knows what's gonna happen to them? They don't have exactly. resources. It's it's crazy, and and it just speaks to the mental health crisis in this country in general, not just for Indigenous folks, not just for people who are dealing with historic trauma, but but for everyone. We need to have a better grasp of how we're going to deal with the mental health issues because dual diagnosis is part of that. It's not separate. It's not like people are just using substances to like party and get down. They're self-medicating the nervous system issues that they have from the trauma that they have experienced. I'm Absolutely. a little passionate about it. Sorry, no, I, I go on I, a soapbox. I'm glad you raised it. Um, I think that that is definitely an issue. And, you know, as a public defender in Humboldt County, I also experienced that firsthand. Um, you know, clients who were very mentally ill, but also self-medicating and clearly had substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being told that they don't qualify for certain treatments or certain programs or certain opportunities because they also had uh, illicit substances in their systems. And I think that that is basically asking us to abandon our own common sense and ignore how those things are related, right? And and. Yeah, and Julie can speak to Julia, if you don't mind, how frustrating it is as a law enforcement officer on patrol trying to sort out these issues and knowing that you don't have the resources to, to do something that, that clearly needs to be done. It is an absolute frustration when you know that you're dealing with somebody who the primary issue is mental health, but because they're under the influence, you know that you can't take them to the mental health facility because they'll reject them. So then the only place you can take them is the Humboldt County Correctional Facility, which is not going to help these people deal with the issues that they have going on. 
And right. it certainly is a one of the big issues for missing people is uh, mentally ill folks who get uh, removed from their comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and so I guess just to, because we could talk about, I could talk about all these issues for a long time. I think to circle back, that's a good place to circle back to victim services and to just have a moment of talking about like, what are some of the actionable practices that listeners could do to support these efforts and to be good allies and to, you know, do what can people do? What can people do to help? So now it's time for the takeaway. The takeaway is an actionable practice that you can take out in the world as you journey forward. It's something that could be, should be, hopefully will be of use to you. It's a practice. It's not something that, you know, maybe you're going to master right away, but possibly you could. It could be something that will really, even today, you could start and you'll see results from it, something that can help you on your journey. And today's takeaway is coming up. So some of the advocacy organizations that are doing work in this space that we work with in coalition are indigenousjustice.org, California Tribal Families Coalition, Strong-Hearted Native Women's Coalition, um, and then more broadly, any kind of philanthropic agency that is working to support uh, the MMIP crisis and indigenous communities more broadly, um, I think is a great way to get involved. I would also say that, uh, you know, if you follow the work that we're doing at the Yurok Tribe, um, you know, the Yurok Tribe's Facebook page, the Yurok Tribe's website, we often ask for support for letters to lawmakers for certain types of bills that we think um, we want to support or sponsor. And so you'll often see out on the Yurok Tribe's Facebook page, you know, please support this bill. Um, we're advocating for someone to take a look at the foster care system and find out why foster children are missing for an average of 41 days in California and oh what God. happens to those foster kids when they're missing from care for 41 days and those types of things. So just learning about the issues, um, becoming involved with the local tribes. Uh, if there's anyone who's listening who works for a local tribe, I created a local MMIP tribal roundtable where there have been um, employees from Trinidad, Bear River, Hoopa, Blue Lake, uh, Yurok coming together to kind of talk about um, what is going on in your organization right now. Do you have any events coming up? Who are your MMIP cases? What grants are you guys going for? Just to kind of have like a working group to discuss how we can uplift each other. So yeah. And encourage people to get involved with any organizations. Um, follow the Yurok Tribes Facebook because we always ask for support for these types of things. If you work for a tribe, please don't hesitate to reach out to Yurok and say you'd like to get involved. Um, and then I would also just say try to be informed on the issue, right? Like it, there seems to be more information coming out 
about MMIP, but there are lots of good podcasts to listen to. I love that you're covering this, Diva, locally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a podcast uh, called Missing that was looking into the case of Jermaine Charlo, who is a uh-huh. woman uh, who is an MMIP from Montana. And her case was being investigated by um, Detective Guy Baker from the Missoula, Montana Police Department, who I've had the opportunity to work with. And he is fantastic and very passionate about the issue. Um, And so, yeah, I'd say for folks just to start learning um, about what's going on, uh, that is the best way. Knowledge is power, right? Because if you don't understand what's going on in these communities, you can't really know in an informed way how to help. Right. I agree. Um, those are all great. And I will put um, listings in the show notes for people. And Julie, I was wondering, from your perspective, do you have anything to add to that in terms of what people could do to help or what would be useful to you as really the state's first dedicated missing and murdered Indigenous persons investigator? Well, I think what I would like to put out there is that think about these families who have these open wounds and they can't heal until uh, they at least know where their people are. So if you have information that can help these families, then please don't hesitate to pass that on to me. I'm not necessarily going to go to law enforcement, but I really want to help these families because those wounds, they just stay open and people uh, right. They don't have any peace. They don't have any peace. And, and it does lead to more issues with those families that wouldn't be there if they could just have some closure. Yeah. And I know that there is a missing and murdered Indigenous persons tip line. And I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. But I'm going to just say it for people who aren't going to go to the uh, the website. It's 833-975-6647. And that is a tip line that you can call, leave it anonymously if that's what you're comfortable with, reach out to Julie. Um, You know, people know things. People know things about what happened. And like you said, Julie, these these are things that, again, have that ripple effect and it's, it's harmful to all of our communities. I guess I would like to wrap up by saying one thing that I think would be uh, another way of <clears throat> of being supportive is if we were to actually find out more, learn more, be more in touch with our local tribes. I know that the Yurok tribe uh, yearly has uh, um, a day where they have guests for some of their traditional practices, and I've never attended that. I've lived here on and off since 1987, and I've never attended that. And it occurred to me like, I'm being a bad neighbor. I don't know what what it is to be a Yurok person, but I could learn more. I could be a better neighbor. I could be in community with these people whose land, uh, I mean, we're living on essentially. So, um, and that's true, not just of the Yurok tribe, but of the, the Wiat tribe and the Karuk and the, the Wailaki and all of these folks, we could go learn who our neighbors are. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think that that, that is um, a good way to frame it, Diva, is to say, you know, we all live in this community together. And um, 
this affects everyone who lives in this community and learning who our neighbors are and what their struggles are will empower us to help uplift our community that we are community members of, right? Like we right. might not be tribal members, but we live in this community. And um, I think that is a, a good way to look at it. Yeah, it affects all of us. Well, thank you both again for your time. I'm really grateful that you took the time to come on. I hope that this is something that will be useful in terms of of people hearing about this issue and hearing about what the Iraq tribe is doing about it. And and I'm just grateful. I'm grateful to both of you for, for leading this. Well, I appreciate you uh, using your time and having us on the show. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate you covering this issue. Yeah, and um, if I, I don't know how often that you are in Klamath, but I, if I'm up there, I will come see you in person and be a better neighbor. And thank you again. Yeah, that sounds great. We'd love to show you around. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey friends, thank you again for joining me on A Voice of Her Own. I hope that this episode was useful, that it was inspiring, that it sparked something in you that you can take out into the world. And if you want to hear more episodes or you want to sign up for our newsletter so you never miss one being released, head on over to www.avoiceofherown.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can get all the show notes. You can uh, get all the links to everything we talked about and any promotional things that I have going on. So again, thanks for joining us and take that out into the world and be your badass self. Mm -hmm.